Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of In Harmony with Piedmont Opera. Today, we are going to be talking with someone that almost needs no introduction. Uh, Her name is Mary Hagland. You know her from all the wonderful work she's done in the culinary field around this city and and so many other things. And, And Mary, I'm excited to talk to some of your background, what you're up to now, and then an amazing event that's coming up in August called Dinner with Divas. It's out at Raffaldini, and she is going to be participating and whipping up something amazing as as a part of it. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I want I want to start here. I, I I walked into the the lovely Piedmont Opera offices here on Holly Street, and I said hi to Connie, and and she says, uh, you know, have do you know Mary? Have you met Mary? And I said, I think the word that I used was Mary's Mary's royalty around Winston-Salem. <laughs> but I want, I want to pose the question to you, maybe. How would you describe your relationship with the city of Winston-Salem um, over the years that you've been a part of this community? Oh, my goodness. Um, so I'm not from here originally. I was born in Gary, Indiana, and lived in Indi- lived, lived a lot of places. And then in high school... Uh, my parents were missionaries, so I moved to the Philippines for almost five years and then came back to Indiana. And once you've lived in the Philippines and then you go back to Indiana, it's pretty pathetic. <laughs> the weather, it's, just, you know, it's flat, it's horrifying. So my parents got a chance to interview for a job in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So my husband, my first husband and I followed them down here and they took the job. So we decided to live here because the... Cause the uh, First of all, Winston-Salem is stunningly beautiful and felt more like home because it's got, you know, it's like in the foothills. And in the Manila where we lived, it was kind of like that too. So, like, the reason I'm telling you this is I'm not from here, so I'm not born a Southerner. Mm -hmm. But we came in 1978, and I've lived here ever since. It's the longest I've ever lived any place continuously. And I feel like Winston-Salem welcomed me with open arms and accepted me as a native daughter because I definitely feel Southern now. (laughs) But um, so this community embraced me 100% um, starting in 2000 when I opened my little restaurant over on Brookstown Avenue, Mary's, of course. And it's been pretty much a love story ever since then. Mm -hmm. Uh, The community here is amazing. And the friendships that I have built are lifelong strong phenomenal i've raised my children here now my grandchildren are being raised here so this is home to me mm-hmm. now so that and that's where most people in this in this town will know you is from your your diner mary's mm-hmm. and then breakfast of mm-hmm. course and um since the since the years it's been almost three years now mm-hmm. since uh since the restaurant closed to give people a, an idea of what you've been up to over the last few years well, retirement's amazing. <laughs> I will not, not going to lie. Um, and I have learned to rest, which is nice. Um, but one of my biggest um, responsibilities is that I am the primary caregiver for my mother. She's 89. My father passed away about six years ago. She lives right next door to me, so that makes it really convenient. But I also just have really enjoyed doing the things that I love, Um, I love hospitality, so I have people over to my house. I have an amazing front porch, and I do this thing called Porch Snacks. 
and we come or people come over and we eat and we drink and we have just so much fun and um, I've just enjoyed being with my grandkids and um, my friends and my other family members just enjoying life because I was so busy for 20 years uh, building and then maintaining my business that a lot of the things that I love doing, I couldn't do. So I really am enjoying my life. And I also, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit restless. So I've been trying to pick up some other things. So it's been pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. I, I Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I, I would imagine you don't miss the stress of the restaurant business. But what do you miss yeah, about it? You are right there. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons I actually ended up closing it was because, you know, I had a business partner, Michael Mian, who now has Mojito uh, in the same space that was Mary's. Um, when when the pandemic hit, I was I had already been retired for like one year. I was still very much involved, but I didn't have to go to work every day, which was awesome. Because by then, I was 66 years old and pretty tired. <laughs> so um, when, the, when, the, when the pandemic hit, and then we, we had to close because the government mandated it. And then it was going on and on. And Michael was like, well, Mary, we need to think about reopening because we were in great shape. We thought, you know, before the pandemic, we're like, we're going to have a banner year and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then I just, for some reason, my gut was just telling me, no, don't do it, don't do it. So I really started soul searching and realized that, I mean, you're right, there's a lot of stress when you're running your own business and managing people and all that good stuff. And I I just had a gut feeling that this pandemic was gonna be horrific and very anxiety producing. And I realized that I don't, I mean, I'm in the last part of my life, let's just be frank. and. I did not want to live the rest of my life under that kind of pressure and that much anxiety. So I made one of the smartest and hardest decisions I've ever made to let it go. And I don't regret it. However, you're right. There are things amiss, of course, the people, the action, the cooking, you know. But fortunately, I still cook a lot and I still see so many people mm -hmm. from that era of my life. And so but I don't have that stress anymore. Yeah. And that, I, I just, I couldn't handle it. That That's something I, I'd love to ask you to elaborate on, which is the idea now, because you still love cooking and it, it's clear you still love that community that, that you had there, but just maybe in a, in a different setting, um, maybe take us into the approach, the mentality and the joy of cooking without the stress cooking just just for friends just for your whether it's the front porch or having people over um that that's style of of doing what you're great at cooking for me is definitely that silly little phrase happy place it's definitely like if i'm stressed had a bad day uh or if i've had a good day it's the place that i always return to my kitchen is the room that i in mo am in most in my house and I cook for myself still, because I, I like good food. <laughs> so I, that makes me happy. Um, and then cooking for other people, it just brings me so much joy. And it, you know, just like, I mean, food is also an art form. And just like any other artist, I cook because I have to. It comes from that place in my soul. So feeding others is what feeds me. So it's like a complete circle of absolute 
bliss and joy and reciprocity with other human beings. And also, I want to, I'm trying to get the word out about hospitality, because I think that we have lost that art form of being hospitality people, especially during the pandemic. And hospitality is a gift that you give to people that you love. And let me tell you something, after I die, I know people are going to be going, remember that great porch party? Mm. Remember those great biscuits she made? I mean, it's part of your legacy. And if you're a great hostess or host, you will be remembered. And you will, because it is such a personal thing that you give to people when you open your very own home, which is very private, and you cook for them with your own hands, you you deliver it to them, and it's just, it's a very personal gift, and people just don't forget it. Yeah, and I would imagine that was part of when it went into the decision about closing down during the pandemic, because, you know, a lot of restaurants shifted to takeout and things like that to, to stay, to stay afloat. That was, that, that took away all the, the entire spirit of your restaurant, right? Entirely. And you know, this word pivot has been thrown around a lot and I get it. People did have to pivot. They were way younger than me. And mm -hmm. Hey, if I was 30 years younger, sure. I might've pivoted, but, uh, there wasn't enough energy in this old body to pivot anymore. <laughs> so you're right. But my restaurant was known for long lines out the door mm -hmm. on the weekends. We were jammed up in there. We kissed everybody. We hugged everybody. Plus, you can't eat an Eggs Benedict to go 30 minutes down the road. My food was not to go food. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the integrity of what I had built and what it stood for would no longer be there. It wouldn't really be Mary's anymore. So I think it is a wise choice whenever anyone decides to gracefully exit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had the uh, the pop up event yes. recently. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? It's been it's been a few months now, yes. but uh, I would love to hear what that was like for you. That was really awesome because Michael and I had talked about doing something like that because you know I never got really any closure because we closed the restaurant and it was just all kind of out in the ether. And I'm big on events and parties and things to you know mark an event. And I never got any kind of face-to-face -face closure with my people. So one of the reasons I did it was for that. And of course, that's exactly what happened. All of my loyal customers showed up. I could hug them and kiss them. And, you know, we could have a conversation and I could break bread again with them and share this moment. And, you know, it was just, it was so wonderful for me. I can't even tell you it was so wonderful. And we may do it again. It's not going to be like a regular thing because, you know, it, it takes a lot out of me. But it it was just amazing. Mm -hmm. What are you mentioned that uh, hospitality can can be somewhat of a lost art and something that gets lost where, where food maybe sometimes becomes too transactional, I guess you could say. What do you believe are the staples of being really good at the hospitality game, whether it's for a small group entertaining people on your front porch or for a large event? What are the key pillars of creating something that people will enjoy? Well, I think number one is you have to love to do it. Um, you can tell when food is cooked from a technical standpoint, just like when you listen to somebody play the piano or sing, if it's a technical performance, or if it's got the heart and soul in it, mm. come on. 
That's easily identified by any other human being who's even halfway paying attention. And then there's um, just a willingness to do the work. Um, and obviously, even if you're not that skilled at cooking, I think anyone that takes makes the effort to get in there and do something and share. It's like people get nervous to cook for me, which is kind of funny to me because <laughs> I am actually have, you know, if, if someone cooks for me, I don't care if it's a grilled cheese. I'm super grateful. Like, so whatever you whatever you put together for another human being that you cook for them, they're going to be grateful for that. Mm. Nobody turns down free food. Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never even thought about that. What it, what. If, if people would feel pressure if they invited you oh, over yeah, to their house. Oh, all the time. Does it really? Yeah. Wow. As a matter of fact, there's not a whole lot of people that cook for me, and that makes me sad because I'm like, come on. Yeah. Um, you care yeah. more You care more about the thought and, and their approach Absolutely. more so than the results. Absolutely. And I love it. There are some people in my life who really aren't great cooks, but they'll cook for me, and I am so appreciative mm-hmm. of that. It's wonderful. Yeah, because they're, they're clearly going to care about it, yeah. and they're going to apply themselves Absolutely. to the process, and what more can you ask for? Absolutely. I, I In those situations, I respond more to the intent mm. of it than the actual product. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I was um, in, in preparation for this conversation. I went back and watched. Uh, you did a Camel City chat um, yes. mm-hmm. a few years ago, yeah. and you had said that uh, your comfort food was Mexican food, specifically La Botana. Mm. Uh, it's my favorite. Restaurant. Has that changed? No. <laughs> no, I discovered La Botana right during a very stressful part of my life, which was when I was building the restaurant, and this was at the first location on Brookstown, and. What happened is we opened in 2000, and then if you remember 2011, which mm-hmm. was the first year that I was open, that hit on 9-11. And 2001, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. 9-11, 2001. Right. Yes, thank you right, for right. putting that up. Yeah. So, and we had been going along pretty good. And then when that happened, you know, the airlines were shutting down. We had no tourists. I mean, it was it was like night and day. And I was in my first year of business, and it, it was hard, like really, really hard. So what I ended up having to do is let go of a lot of people in the kitchen with me. And I was doing a lot of the work myself during the week. And then on the weekends, I would bring people in to help because I couldn't, it was busier on the weekends. But wow, yeah, that was, yeah, that was intense. But Mexican food is still your comfort food. Yeah. And so I'm sorry. Yes, I got distracted. (laughs) Um, So then during that time, like I was, I would go into the restaurant the wee hours of the morning, prep for breakfast and lunch, serve lunch, clean, count the money, get in the car, go to Sam's Club or Costco Mm -hmm. to get more food because the restaurant was so tiny that you couldn't keep tons of food in there. And I would be exhausted, like just physically exhausted. But I knew I had a good thing, so I was going to hang in there if whether or not it killed me. Didn't even have a dishwasher, an electric dishwasher we, in the no, first location, no, no. right? We didn't have ever have an electric dishwasher in the yeah. first location. But anyway, so what would happen is we would leave um, the restaurant, and on our way to go to Sam's Club or whatever, we would go. We found this little place, La Botana, and it was, oh, my God, just it's family-owned. Julie and Rigo are two dear friends now. Um, he cooked a different style. It was all really fresh, not really greasy, um, and very creative. 
And I just, I would literally, I remember going into those booths and just sinking into that booth and they would bring the chips and salsa and then some, you know, delicious dark mole or whatever it was that time. And just my soul and spirit and body would be revived mm. so that I could go back to the restaurant and unload the groceries, go home, try to get some sleep and come and do it all over again. So that place is very, very dear to my heart. And during the pan during the pandemic, they struggled like everyone did. And then when I decided to close, I um, there were some paintings that one of my friends did. And her name's Zat McConnell, and they were the um, if y'all were at the restaurant, they were the um, the cartoons uh, on the bottom floor. And I decided that I would auction these off, hmm. and then I did, and we raised over five thousand dollars. And I took the money to La Botana and gave it to Rigo and Julie to help pay their rent. Oh wow! So that was paying it forward. But really, I was just secretly hoping they wouldn't go out of business because right. <laughs> I would die. Because if, if you didn't if, have that part of if your I evening. If I didn't have that food, you know, so <laughs> they're still there. And they, they did some pivoting, but they did a great job. And I love them so much. And I still go out there to eat a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's just so great. Uh, yeah, so awesome. The, the one thing that I took away from it, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense when you deter, when you try to figure out, okay, there's there's a lot of different places that serve Mexican-style food, but mm -hmm. in terms of what seems authentic and really truly brings out the authentic flavors of it, because one of the things that you said about La Botana is they don't just throw a bunch of cheese at everything, you know? No. And a lot of times when you go to an Americanized Mexican restaurant, which mm -hmm. is a lot of the places here that are corporate or whatever, mm -hmm. there, we have a whole lot of good Mexican restaurants down on Southside. Mm -hmm. On Sprague and Watown, those are all those are authentic. Mm -hmm. Now those weren't there so much back in the day, but when you go to these other places that pe Americans think is Mexican food, it's not. It's been Americanized. You look at you can look at four different plates and they all look the same. It's like some brown crap, some cheesy crap, some you know, and it looks all the same to me. Yeah. And that's not the way Rigo cooks. His food is beautiful. There's lots of vegetables. Uh, his hot sauce is amazing. To me, the sign of a great chef is soup and sauces, and he does those two things exceptionally well. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So we, we've talked a little bit about food and its preparation can, can be an art form. Um, as, as we relate it to Piedmont Opera and, and other forms of art, what is your relation and experience with performing arts in, in this city? Well, performing arts and just our general art community, um, I ended up getting very connected with uh, really through no fault of mine. I mean, I don't take any credit for it. When I got the first location, I was sort of handed uh, a monthly art show, which, of course, we could make a decision to either continue or not continue. But we were like, sure, what the heck, let's try it, even hmm. though we had no idea what we were doing. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So we did. And what ended up happening is a lifelong collection of the most amazing friends. I have a stunning art collection because we used to have an art show every month at the first place. And um, the community that was created through all of that was just mind-blowing. And my life has been immeasurably enriched through the community of artists in this town, in performing arts, in music, in visual arts, dance, all of it, uh, deeply connected 
with me and my soul and them with me. And I feel like we definitely had a reciprocal relationship to this day. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so I, I'd love to know how the idea came about or how you got involved with this event that, that we're also discussing here, which is Dinner with Divas, August 12th at Raffledini. How did this get started? What spawned this? Well, my goodness, Connie... Connie uh, contacted me, and I know her, knew her kind of on the outer edge of my circle of friends. She has friends that I have friends with, but um, so she asked me to come meet her. We had a breakfast together, and she asked me if I would be interested, and I was like, yeah, sure, you know, but she was thinking more of like a straight-up dinner kind of a thing, but I wasn't really... I'm not really that comfortable with that. So I was like, how do you feel about tapas? Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, she was like, that's perfect because the operas that they're doing next season are mostly from Seville, I believe she said. Okay. And so that was very exciting to me because that's where all, that's where tapas started, you know? So we're going to do the dinner with divas at Raffaldini, which by the way, is one of the most stunningly beautiful places I've been in, in North Carolina so gorgeous it's like you're in italy up there and it's usually about 10 degrees cooler which is going to be very helpful because it's in august Uh but um so i'm designing a menu of tapas which is connected to the foods from seville and i'm i'm excited about it i it's my one of my favorite ways to eat is tapas and little little things you know like Mm -hmm. that so I and I think also because it's going to be hot, it'll be nice just to be able to have eat a little bit lighter, mm-hmm. but have just exquisite bites of food. And um, I'm also connecting with because everything I do, I try to connect with other uh, food makers in our town. Never have it just be me. It's got I've got to connect with people. I've got other people that are helping me, and they're going to collaborate with me on some stuff. And I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. So you'll be you'll be working then with a lot of uh, locally sourced uh, restaurants and and, uh, vendors and and produce and give us a sense of of how you are going to be collaborating with a lot of the local um, food providers. Um, Of course, we I I use all local produce Mm -hmm. and uh, there are many, many farms that I'm connected with here. And also there's a organization uh, run by Rebecca Zolikoffer, it's called Let It Grow Produce, and she she gets all the local farmers' produce and eggs and dairy and all kinds of things. Sometimes meat, sometimes uh, bakery products, and you can order from her twice a week, and she delivers it right to your door, which is amazing. And then um, people like um, Brittany McGee, who owns the Humble Bee Bakery, mm-hmm. she's going to be doing the dessert for us. Oof. And then she and I are really good friends. We go we go back pretty far, and I adore her, and I adore her what the works that she does. Another young lady named Erin Atwood. She's recently starting a business where, and she makes a lot of pickled things, like kind of unusual, like green beans and Brussels sprouts, and they're amazing. So we're going to be using some of her products. Um, Michael Mian, who I spoke of earlier. Uh, who has the Cuban restaurant, he's going to be making some empanadas mm. with sauce. Amazing little, you know, just yummy little bites. And then I'm hoping to connect with some local bakeries for bread items. So uh, that's that's what we're doing. And then the produce that I'll be using to make other dishes will come from local sources as well. Sure. 
That all sounds amazingly delicious. August 12th is the night of the event at Raffledini. You can still buy tickets. You can go to Piedmont Opera's website, piedmontopera.org, and you can buy tickets for this fantastic event that Mary will be a part of. It benefits a, the, the proceeds from this will benefit a rising soprano. Um, how important was that to you to see this event go towards something like that? It's amazing. I went out to uh, an event right before, was it right before or right after Connie asked me to do this? But I went out there and um, two sopranos were singing. Oh my goodness, it was so amazing. Oh, it's just, when you're in the presence of that kind of talent, oh, oh mm-hmm. just chokes me up. So beautiful. And uh, I love the fact that Connie has talked to me about opera, like the background of it. I've always loved opera, but felt a little disconnected from it because I you think of it as more like kind of hoity-toity and like, you know, out of my social class. But one of the things Connie's trying to do is she's bringing it to the people, mm-hmm. which is, oh my goodness, like this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about connecting with this organization because that's what I'm all about. And so, and then also to be, know, to know that they are going to be supporting a soprano in that situation is, oh, uh, I, it's just great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it truly is a win-win. It's 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 for a great cause, yes. as you just heard. It's going to be a wonderful event. So please, if you haven't, uh, and you're just now learning about this event, go online piedmontopera.org. Call the Piedmont Opera offices. Uh, we'll have their information right there in the show notes, and uh, and you can be a part of the event. So one thing that I just learned before we started recording that I want to ask you about is I understand that there's potentially a documentary in the works. It's already been worked on for uh, a year. Yeah, let, let's let's hear well, anything really, you can share yeah, on this. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share this. Um, so this has been a dream of mine for over 10 years. It's to document what I was talking about earlier about the relationship between myself, the restaurant, and the, the artist that I met. And the name of the documentary is How to Feed an Artist. And we're so excited about this. We've been working on it for a year already. We'll probably have another two years of work. But we have been very fortunate to connect with a production company from Cincinnati called Storiosity. We have uh, a dear friend of mine, Zach McConnell, and then her friend, Kat Ryder, who is a filmmaker come on board as the directors and we've done a lot of pre-production in the past year and then we got to a point I had raised a little bit of money to do some of that but then we had to get serious because we don't have any money and you know I just have to say let me insert this just really quickly that I know that you all heard about like all the striking in uh the world of Hollywood making film sure so artists and writers okay well documentary filmmakers they're not in SAG they they're not union members so they have to keep making their living scrappily making their living and so i just want to say that that you know we're we one of the reasons we're raising money is because we believe that artists should be paid what they're worth so we need this and this is an actual real documentary it's not something you shot on your iphone this is very serious i mean it's a serious filmmaking project but it's not you know not a serious film i mean it's great it's gonna be lots of fun and interesting but a lot of people will put a lot of hard work in it a lot and we feel that's important that they get paid Mm -hmm. a living wage all these people have already put in a year's work and really got paid very little so but it is what they call a passion project and they all are aware of that 
But we also believe that that we need to raise money to pay for the now the next step, which is production. And um, we have had we've had a one week of the campaign. It's a GoFundMe campaign, um, and uh, we've raised ten thousand dollars. And we need a lot more than that. And we are also applying for gra- many grants from as many as we can that we uh, you know are eligible for. So we hope to be getting some of that in the next couple years. But it you know it's a scary thing to branch out on something like this. But I feel so passionately about this project, and it's it's really a gift to this community because. It's all about the arts in Winston-Salem. It's all about mom-and-pop restaurants. It's all about how, who do you think sustains artists when they're not making living off their art is a lot of them work in restaurants and hospitality. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's this symbiotic relationship. And um, it's. I just think it's such an important story. And I'm just so excited about it. We have, um, if you go to my Facebook page, you can find the GoFundMe. And then we also have a beautiful website that they designed. It's um, www.howtofeedanartist.org. Okay. And then, of course, we have How to Feed an Artist, which is a page on Instagram. And it's a lot of very interesting uh, information, especially the website explains everything. We're very transparent about what we're doing. And um, I really this, the community has really stepped up so far, and I hope that that will continue so that we, we can make this film. Because it's a story that needs to be, that we we try to tell the story in so many different ways. This is a documentary is one of the best forms of storytelling that's out there, and that's what you're trying to do yeah. is trying to tell the story in, in a way that can be most impactful, right? Exactly. Yeah, and and you were always, I mean, anybody who went into your restaurant would notice this, but you you always showcase so much art and handcrafted things all over the table and. Um, everything that was in there, people just wanted to, to take them home or buy right, them or right. do something. So that was important to you too, right? Very important. And the art shows that we had, and the first restaurant we had, the art show every month, and we sold, sold more art out of that little restaurant than like any gallery yeah. in town, I'm quite sure. Yeah. We would open the doors for an art show and the entire wall would sell out in a half an hour. And then at the other place, at the place downtown that was bigger, we couldn't do the monthly art shows. Those were like, over 100-year-old walls, plaster walls, and very delicate. So I permanently installed, it was five or six of my favorite local artists, which I commissioned, I paid for, like literally thousands and thousands of dollars worth of art. Hmm. And then now uh, some of this art that was there has been donated to public art by me because I think that's so important. And I want people to think about how important art is to your daily life. Like, how do you think you got through the pandemic? Mm. Movies, music, dance. I mean, all of these things that you could enjoy at home. Imagine a world without art. It's just sad. Mm -hmm. Just sad. Like, I can't even imagine. And I think that sometimes people think, like, I used to think that art was what hung in the walls in Europe. But it, that's not, of course that's art, but art walks amongst us. Artists walk amongst us and they have to eat and pay their bills just like anybody else. And they're willing to do whatever they have to do to sustain that. But it's so wonderful. Like in the movie, you're gonna see some people here locally who had their first art show at Mary's 
and they now completely take care of all of their needs and pay their bills through their artwork, Yeah, which mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Kind of rare, which is unfortunate, because I don't think we value art enough and the payment that artists get. And that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when people would come to me over the years like, well, we were thinking about doing this mural, and don't you think just the exposure would be enough? Oh, my gosh, I would get so mad. (laughs) I'm like, does exposure pay your bills, pal? Mm -hmm. No. Artists need to be paid their worth, just like anyone else at their job. And that's the story that you're hoping to tell. That is correct, sir. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's, – I started thinking about it when you mentioned it. What would our daily life be like if we removed all forms of art from it? We, we couldn't sit in these chairs. We could not. Uh, I mean, the, the car that you drive, somebody has to have design. A, a design. Yes. Somebody has to be able to design these things and know how to create it and put it together. And uh, you mentioned TV shows and movies and everything that is visually stimulating in your world or, or, or maybe brings and you comfort. to your ears, to your nose, yes. to your mouth. All five senses. I'll tell you what it would be without art is bleak. Yeah. (laughs) Very bleak. Absolutely. And um, uh, what a sad world that would be. And I'm so proud of like, you know, to me, this is generational work as well. For example, my grandson, who's now 24, he went to school of the arts. He got a degree in design and production. And he is this week actually at Penland learning more about his craft. Hmm. And his dream is to have his own business where he designs and builds custom-made furniture. And I'm so excited for that. And so, you know, that never, my, my, my grandchildren would have had these opportunities if they weren't raised in this atmosphere that was literally saturated in creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how exciting is that? It is. It is. So we're, we're going to include a link to, um, to support the, the documentary and tell the story. And like you said, you're, Thank not, you. you're not raising money necessarily because of anybody trying to be just because it's a, it's a money making venture. You're no, it's, it's because there are a lot of people working hard on telling this story and yes. they need to be fairly compensated. Thank you. And also we, we also have budgeted into this and hopefully we'll raise enough money to do this. We want to do some commissioned artwork mm. for it. Okay. And we would never ask an artist to just donate. Right. Like never it's, you get paid. Mm hmm. So that's part of what we're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you for being such an advocate uh, for their hard work. Well, I wouldn't like it if people didn't pay me for my food. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me uh, – this has been such a, a, a great and fascinating conversation. I'll, I'll let you – I'll just kind of give you the final word here and say, is there anything you'd like to, to leave our listeners with um, before we close up? I just want to say a heartfelt thank you to Winston-Salem as a whole and then all the people in my life, even including Connie, who's kind of a new uh, connection, to just spread my wings into other things and keep me engaged and and fulfilled in my life. And unto everyone in Winston who has supported Mary's, and but most especially to the people that continue to support the arts in this town. We are the city of the arts. So let's make it look like that. Very well said. That is Mary Hagland. Thank you so much for your time again. August 12th, Dinner with Divas at Raffledini. Get your tickets now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.